So Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on himself which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them, that is, he will shepherd them with a rod, that is, a staff of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Paul said in Titus chapter 2 verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And we read these verses on Sunday, the return of the King, the glorious appearing, the parousia in the Greek, the second coming. It has several descriptive names. But however you refer to this moment that we read about in Scripture and can only imagine, it's the promise that Jesus is coming back. He is returning. He will come a second time to establish His kingdom as set forth in Scripture to rule and to reign from His throne in Jerusalem. Ezekiel chapter 43, verse 7. He said to Ezekiel, Son of man, this is the place of My throne and the place of the soles of My feet, where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. Ezekiel 43, verse 9. Now let them put away their harlotry and the corpses of their kings far from Me, and I will dwell among them forever. He comes to rule from His throne. Now, apparently, Game of Thrones is over. (laughs) Probably a good thing for its uh, so-called mature themes. I love how how the media does that. It's called mature, as if maturity is, you know, nudity and extreme violence and these sorts of things. But, whatever. While the finale of this past week of Game of Thrones... Burned all previous records. 19.3 million viewers tuned in to see who was going to sit on the Iron Throne. I don't even know what that means, but if, if you've seen it, don't tell me. But apparently, with the final episode of Game of Thrones, this epic HBO show, fans were sorely disappointed. Not happy. In fact, there were, there were fans writing in in mass to try and get them to redo the entire last season. Because they just didn't like the way the show went. I have news for them. It's, it's fiction. It's entertainment. Move on. Move on. How different, however, will it be when Jesus comes to take His throne? I guarantee you no one's going to be disappointed. No one waiting for Him. Among all those who are tuned in for the finale, no one is going to be bummed out or disappointed or want to redo when Jesus comes to rule and to reign. 
Colossians 3 verse 3 tells us, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. And that's the key, by the way, to looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. What is? Christ is our life. When Christ is your life, you cannot wait to be with Christ for life. And so we wait for Him, and we look forward to Him. I was talking about this with a few people earlier today. It, it's almost funny if, if non-believing people would, would come and sit in here and see how excited we were for the end. They'd think we were nuts. You can't wait for the end of the world? Well, that's because it's the beginning. That's because that's when we know everything's going to be right and good and perfect. And we're about to get to that point in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Where the Word of God concludes giving us that remarkable picture. I mean, by comparison, it is just a picture. It's a brief picture. It's, it's not an eternal picture. It's just two chapters worth. It's like we said on Sunday. It's just like communion compared to the feast. It's the appetizer to the real thing. And yet we're coming to this point in the study that I can't wait for. It's so exciting because it is so awesome and encouraging and uplifting. And this is what we're looking to. And so, yes, I can't wait for the end. I want it to be over. In the same, the same way, I couldn't wait for my surgery to be over a year and a half ago. I wasn't looking forward to the surgery, but I was looking forward, forward to the end of it because I knew after that it would get better. And that's what's coming. And so, yes, we're hopeful for the return of Jesus to change things, to make things right. And I want to ask you a question tonight because it's pertinent to Revelation chapter 19. And that is, when are your dinner reservations? When are your dinner reservations? Do you have reservations for first supper or second supper? Because there are two represented here. First supper. The marriage supper of the Lamb that we read about, talked about last week. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Of course, the bride doesn't even have to be invited because the supper is for her, for the church to be there, to be presented by Jesus as His bride, as His wife, spotless and and clean. But the marriage supper of the Lamb, that you can have reservations for that, be in Christ. Or there's reservations there are for second supper, which is called the great supper of God. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And you read verses like that and think, how in the world am I supposed to teach that? Second supper, bird food. And it's the flesh of all those who stand and fight against Jesus. Note how all-inclusive that language is. Kings, commanders, mighty men, all men. Free and slave and small and great. And even the horses they ride, bird food. That's not very fair for the poor horses. Hey, God's not the one who dragged them into battle. God's not the one who forced them to charge and to fight and to be a part of that massive Armageddon warfare. Besides, don't worry about the horses. God can create horses faster than you can say giddy up. 
And as a matter of fact, while the horses on earth are becoming bird food in the battle, there's a massive innumerable amount of horses in the heavens, right? Providing transportation for Jesus and for the armies that follow Him in fine linen, white and clean. But Romans chapter 2 verse 11 tells us, and note this, there is no partiality with God. Which is why there at the end of verse 18, you see that it's both free men and slaves. Small and great. In other words, it doesn't matter who you are, if you are on earth at that time, if you are resistant to, rebellious to, fighting against Jesus at that time, bird food. Because God is absolutely impartial. Which is wonderful, and it's good news because He's not only impartial when it comes to judgment, He's impartial when it comes to grace. In the age in which we live right now, it doesn't matter who you are. God is absolutely impartial to convey grace. No one is ignored. And in verse 18, flesh is used five times to convey an amazing carnage. Call goes out like a, a dinner bell to the mid-heavens. Mid-heaven is the sky above where the birds fly. So the call of this angel goes out to mid-heaven. And we need to talk turkey. This is a, prepare yourselves, foul picture. Verses 17 and 18, you can call pecking orders. Assemble. Come on, people, get with me here. I mean, if you're hawkish, right? Even if you're a night owl, this feast is for the birds. Wow. I'll give you one more. They're going to travel light because all they'll have is their carry-on. <laughs> carry-on, you know, carry-on is dead, dead animals. That... Thank you. <laughs> this is, by the way, not the first time this is mentioned. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 27, As lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures, the itoi, the eagles, will gather. Where the corpse is, there the eagles will gather. Well, guess what? Where the corpses are, the birds will gather. The birds of the mid-heaven. The, the raptor birds. That is, birds of prey. And they're not praying like you might think. They have come now to feed and to feast. And Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. So you might draw a link or maybe even note in your margin there. Verse 19, Jesus refers to... Matthew 24, 28. Where the corpse is, there the vultures vultures will gather. And that's what he's talking about. Monday, we looked out the window. It's kind of rainy, you know, North Whidbey, cloudy day. Looked out the window of our uh, of the back of our house, and we have this several trees around us, and the, but there are two that, that grow up very, very tall, and they're dead now, which is unfortunate. But two tall Douglas firs. And they're just like these two sticks going straight up. And there are a few branches still sticking out. And at the very top was an eagle that had just landed. Not, not a new thing for this part of the world, but wow, this thing was huge. It was absolutely huge. I was trying to measure, if, if I were to climb up that tree, how big would it be next to me? And it was nearly as big sitting on that top branch as I am tall. Huge. And it's just sitting there. Looking around, I'm like, 
I'm like, to my mother-in-law, Sharon, let the dog out. (laughs) I'm kidding. Just wondering, what would happen? Would he swoop? I mean, because he's looking, looking for a snack. Dog treat. <laughs> but he's up there, and then at one point opened his wings, shook the rain off, and pulled him back in. It was just amazing. And you know, in fact, isn't it weird when you think about something, how often you see that thing almost immediately? You know what I mean? Like, so I'm thinking about birds of prey, and, and I'm thinking about the great supper of God, and so these are birds coming down, and they're picking and pecking, and, and here I see this eagle, I'm driving home yesterday, and there's a crow picking some kind of, I think it was a dead squirrel in the road, and I'm like, wow, I'm seeing this everywhere. They're all over the place. When Jesus said, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather, check this out, he'd said it before. When? Well, not actually in his first coming. He said it prior to his first coming. Keep your finger here and turn all the way back to the book of Job, chapter 39. Job 39. It's quite a ways back. Back before the Psalms. Book of Job, chapter 39. Now, while you're turning there, give you a heads up. The Lord is talking to Job. And if you've read the story of Job, you know this was a flawless man. This was a guy who had it all together. This guy who was righteous, who was generous, who was loving, who was kind, who was giving, and he needed to repent. Not in terms of this massive sin in his life. He needed to repent in terms of turning to the Lord. Because he was awfully good. But see, even awfully good is never good enough. And so the whole book of Job is about the Lord ultimately getting his attention to say, you need to have eyes on me, Job. And so you get to the last of the book, 38, 39, you get to the end chapters of Job, and it's God having a conversation with Job, except God's doing all the talking, and He's asking Job questions. And in verse 36 of Job chapter 39, He says, Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, stretching his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the cliff he dwells and lodges upon the rocky crag in an inaccessible place. From there he spies out food. He sees it from afar. His young ones also suck up blood. Watch this. And where the slain are, there is he. Where the corpses are, there the eagle will gather. Jesus had said this before. God had spoken these words to Job. Wherever the corpse is, there the eagles will gather. And so this is a, this is a point in time, a pinpoint in Scripture. It's now repeated by Jesus in Matthew 24, and we see it happening finally in Revelation 19. I love the fact that for 6,000 years, God has been suggesting these things. And He's been laying these things out. Now, now this one's, you know, this one's... Enigmatic, you know, where the vulture is or where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather or the eagles will gather. You hear that and go, well, that's interesting. What does that mean? And until you get to Revelation 19, you don't necessarily know exactly what Jesus was getting at. Exactly why God said what He said to Job. But there's so much by way of prophecy in the Bible that is just undeniable where God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to tell you the end from the beginning. 
and I'm going to tell it to you over and over and over. Why, Lord? Why would you do that? Why so many pages in such a big book? 66 books, by the way, in the Bible. One revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. Why would He do this? Such is His grace. Such is the love of God. He truly is impartial in that He doesn't want anybody to miss what He has to say. To miss what is coming and to miss out on the opportunity of choosing Him. Now, from Job, go ahead to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 17. And I want to give you Luke's take on this same statement by Jesus, slightly different. Why is it different? Because Luke is different than Matthew. (laughs) We have different witnesses. And so we round out the picture by hearing from all four Gospels, which I think is really cool. But Luke chapter 17, Luke 17 verse 33. And check this out. Jesus has been, well, foretelling His second coming, again, which Scripture has been doing for 6,000 years. From the earliest prophecy we have on record, Behold, I saw the Lord coming with many thousands of His holy ones, Jude verse 14 which is from Enoch in the seventh generation of Adam, all the way since then. And then here in Luke 17, verse 33, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Translation, try to do it your way, bird food. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. Translation, give it to me. Give me your life. And I got you. 34. I tell you, on that night, now watch this, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and the other will be left. Verse 36. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. And answering him, they said, Where, Lord? And he said to them, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. So there's the same phrase. But note the context. He's all of a sudden, at one point, he's describing a departure of sorts. Actually, he describes two departures to two different feasts. You see, the departure to the marriage supper of the Lamb is by way of the rapture of the church. Departure number one gets you to feast number one. But the departure of being actually left will set you up for the second supper. But let me explain something here. The disciples say, where, Lord? Where? He just said two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other will be left. Where? Well, the question is, are they asking where those who are taken will be taken? Or where those who are left will be left. And it's important to note the distinction. Jesus understands. He knows what they're asking. And He answers. He obviously assumes they are asking where those who are left will be left. Which is the opposite of what you might think. Jeremy, that sun is just killing you back there, isn't it? You got you can move if you want into the shade. That's what I do. If I'm up here in the sun's nailing, I just move. I just feel bad for you. It's awful. Somebody put some blinds up there. Anyway, this is important to note because you read this and he says two will be in the field, one will be taken, the other will be left. And they say where? And you would think that they're saying where will they be taken? They're not asking that. 
Because when Jesus answers, he answers where they will be left. He says where the body is, there the vultures will be gathered. Well, where's the body? It's on the field. It's left behind. It's those who are left. How do you know this? Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Corpse, in Matthew 24, 28, is Potoma. P-T-O-M-A, if you're jotting that down. Potoma means dead body. Wherever the dead body is, that's where the vultures will gather. Is that a heavenly place? No. That's earth. The body, the dead body and the vultures. It's not a heavenly thing. That's those who are left. And then, of course, in Luke 17, 37, where the body is, there the vultures. And vultures is aetos, which means vulture or eagle. It's bird of prey. Where the body is there, the vultures will be gathered. Body is soma here, which both translates body and soul, but not, get this, not spirit. Where the, this is not where the spirit is. If he said, where the spirit is, there something will happen. Then we could assume, oh, that's heavenly. This is body, corpse, dead body. This is on earth. He's talking about those who are left behind. And for those who are left, the eagles will gather. Revelation 19. You can go back there now. Those who are taken, who are raptured, are raptured. Note this, and it's important. Body, soul, and spirit. Do you realize that when the rapture of the church happens, the the harpazo, the catching up, some of you will not go while some of you falls to the ground. Your body doesn't go while your spirit goes up. In the rapture of the church, you go. Body, soul, and spirit complete. All that you are. Your physical body is physically resurrected. In the same way that Jesus' physical body was physically resurrected. And off we go. Bodies glorified. Soul intact. Spirit. All that I am goes up in the rapture. How do we know it's all three? And there's not like a break apart. And you know, you leave the body behind. and off. Because Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So He comes, He calls, and off we go in the rapture of the church. And by the way, Bible students, you remember what the word taken is? One will be taken, one will be left. Luke 17, Matthew 24, one will be taken, one will be left. The word taken, note this always, is paralambano. In both places, paralambano, which means received unto. One will be received unto, one will be left. He is very cl- Jesus is very clearly talking about the rapture of the church. The reason why I sit on this one often and, and bring this up is that this was life-changing for me. I had heard about the rapture. I had read the Left Behind series. I had considered these things. I was still not convinced until I saw Jesus in the red letters. Not that there should be more weight there than the rest of the Word, because it's all the Word of God, but man, it made a difference to hear Jesus say, one will be received unto, and one will be left. And to note that Jesus uses the same word in John 14, 3, saying, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive unto myself, paralambano, same word, that where I am, there you may also be. Jesus confirms There will be those left and those received unto in the rapture of the church. You could say that these Christians are caught up, raptured, we fly the coop before the bird supper. 
We're out. Spirit, soul, body to the first feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and those who are left, who we're talking about here in verses 17 and 18 of Revelation 19, they survive to the end of the tribulation. They're in this massive battle of Armageddon, and they will be on earth for the second feast, which is called the Great Supper of God. I didn't call it that. He did. Potoma or Soma, corpses and bodies are not carried off, they're carry on. And again, we're not talking luggage. These left will be fodder for the feast in the fields. And with the cry of the angel, all the birds of the mid heavens will start circling. What's happening? When is this? It is at the apex of Armageddon, verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And this is absolutely insane. This verse gives such insight into what's happening at this moment in the battle at Megiddo. All the nations of the earth are gathered here. Antichrist and his cohorts and the rest of the nations who have figured out that Antichrist is not a good guy. That he is not the man of peace that he claimed to be. And they show up to fight. They've all been led there. Remember by the demon frogs? Going out into all the world. Three frog-like demons that go out and they invite people to come to fight in the battle of Megiddo. Well, they all show up. So you have all the nations of the world in this massive world war taking place in the Valley of Megiddo. And by the way, the Valley of Megiddo is big enough. It's huge. And it runs 200 miles from north to south, from from Megiddo down to Basra. So all the armies of the earth are engaged here. By the way, that's 200 miles (laughs) as the crow flies. Down the Jordan Rift Valley from Megiddo down to Basra. And suddenly, suddenly the heavens open. The king of kings comes riding out. And he's followed by this. And I told you on Sunday morning, get the picture. Think about it. If you can even imagine such a thing as the skies roll back like a scroll. And there's Jesus on the white horse at the head of it all. And a massive number of people following him on white horses. And it is the saints clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Even as He is in a robe dipped in blood, we are in fine linen, white and clean because His blood has purified us. And all gathered there beginning to descend from the skies and the nations of the earth, according to verse 19, they freak out, form rank, and they focus all their firepower on Jesus. I call humanity's reaction to the return of Jesus Armageddon stupid. Armageddon stupid. That they would react and respond in this way. It's insane. It's incredible. And it's over in an instant. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, That lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. The deceiver deceives them all. Even those who are fighting against him are deceived and rebellious. And all this rebellious love go down in an instant 
Revelation 19 verse 15 tells us, For from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And in verse 21 of Revelation 19, And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now listen, you need to understand in our studying this tonight, I am not telling you what I want to have happen. In fact, I'm not even telling you what God desires to see happen. We're looking at what's going to happen. We're simply looking at what God has already seen. And if anyone is heartbroken on this day, it's the King of Kings riding on the white horse, looking down at this mass of rebellious humanity, now turning all their missile launchers and bows and arrows and and rockets and everything at Him. As if. Right? So we don't look at these things, we don't teach these things with joy. We have to look at them because they're here. And something you might want to mention to non-believing friends, because I've, I've heard it before. In fact, I've heard it especially going to Israel. You evangelical Christians are just so hopeful that everybody in the whole world is going to go into tribulation. No, I'm not. No. In fact, the reason we talk about it right now is so people won't go into tribulation. Now, this is what's coming. Warning. Don't go off that cliff. You don't have to. So no, I don't teach this with glee. And even when I say Armageddon stupid, what I'm saying is how foolish is mankind to think it can stand up to the King of Kings. How ridiculous to think it can turn suddenly and oh no, in a panic, we can repel Jesus coming in the clouds. We can refuse the entry of the coming Christ. It's inane. And the truth is, Philippians 2 verse 10 tells us at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But by the end of Armageddon, by touchdown of the Christ, the only sound to be heard in that moment will be that of birds picking at their supper. Verse 20, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Now hold that, hold that thought for a moment, that they're thrown alive into the lake of fire. And think about this. Notice in verse 20 what it takes to be deceived. Listen to it again. By which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. It, what it takes to be deceived is you got to buy in. you got to buy into deception. That is, those who are deceived, they take the mark. They receive the mark. They worship the image. They received the fruit, Adam and Eve. To be deceived, you got to buy in. There is a moment when you are, when deception happens, not you, but, but there's a moment when deception happens that the devil or the deceiving spirit or the deceiving individual is offering the deceit and someone has the choice, do I take it or not? Do I receive deceit? 
Will I accept this? Do I want this? I, you know, there's something in us even that knows, I'm not sure if this is okay, but yes, I'll take it. And the deception comes. So there is a responsibility there. Accept the deception and you will be deceived. But, listen, you can reject it. This is a thing we've come back to several times in the last few years especially. You know, you don't have to sin. We can reject wrongdoing. By the Spirit of the living God in us, having received Jesus, we can say no to unrighteousness. We're not doomed to sin. What about the sin nature? I understand we have a sin nature, but I also am born again by the blood of Jesus Christ. I have His Holy Spirit dwelling in me. I don't have to sin. What if you do? Thank God for grace and for forgiveness. And I'm not sitting you here telling you I'm a perfect man, but I'm telling you this, I don't have to be imperfect. I'm not destined to fail. Not anymore. Not since Jesus came in. How, how do I reject deception? By receiving the Lord. And I mean receiving Him as Lord and Savior, yes, but I re- mean receiving Him in the moment. We refuse deception by receiving Jesus. Psalm 121 verse 7 says, The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. You know what your soul is? It's your mind. That's where deception happens first. It's in your mind. He'll keep your soul. He'll protect you. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Now, back to Antichrist and the false prophet, the beast and the false prophet who are thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. These two are not fodder for the feast of the birds. These two are fuel for the fire. They go direct into the lake of fire. They do not pass go. They do not collect $200. They go into the lake of fire. Verse 21 And the rest, as we read, were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. That is Jesus. The sword is the long sword of killing. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. But you know what's interesting? All those who are part of the great supper of God, the bird food, all those who are plucked and pecked and picked at by the birds, all those who die in that moment, you know what's remarkable? They don't go into the lake of fire. Not yet. Not yet. Why? Because God is perfectly just. Because He is absolutely fair. The choice that we make today for or against Jesus is a choice of, a choice of either rapture or raptor. Look at it that way. Carnivorous birds... Again, that come to this supper. But hear this, at the marriage supper, it's remarkable to me that the groom waits upon the bride. It's in the song. It's in Luke and Rachel's song. But it's not just in their song, it's in the Scriptures. Luke 12, verse 37, Blessed are those slaves whom the Master will find on the alert when He comes. Truly I say to you that He will gird Himself to serve. And He will have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them And in the new song that we sang, Wedding Day, He moves around the table, draws near to me. The King of all glory is serving the feast. That's supper number one. Second supper, the great supper of God, the nations are also served. They're the main course. 
served to the birds. So you might ask, all right, well, these are, they're killed. Why aren't they also just immediately thrown into the lake of fire? And we have the beast, Antichrist, we have the false prophet, they're thrown in. Why all these others? Why are they not thrown into the lake of fire? Because God, in all of His righteousness, in all of His absolute fairness, has provided a day for them to plead their case. If you've ever had a friend, or maybe it's been you, if you've ever been in the position of saying, well, I'm good enough. Well, there's a day coming where you can make your case to God. And because he is absolutely just and fair, now the false prophet and the beast have already pled their case. They're already out. The rest who are killed with the sword that comes from his mouth, they have a day coming. It'll be a thousand year later, a thousand years later, after the millennial kingdom, judgment day. Judgment day. Which is, as we've said many times, not for you. If you're in Christ, you come with Christ. If you're in Christ, you are raptured to be with Him. If you're in Christ, your judgment day happened 2,000 years ago at the cross. That was judgment day. Because Jesus took all the judgment of the wrath of God on Himself in your place, in my place. That's judgment day. But there is another judgment day. If you don't want that, for those who reject Jesus, who say, I do not want Him as Lord. I don't want Him standing before me. I just want to plead my goodness before God. That day is coming. And God provides for that, and we will see that next week, I believe. But I have another question about this. How long does the lake of fire burn? How long does the lake of fire burn? Now, I bring this up because there is a false doctrine that's going around, it's making the rounds again. It has, from time to time, in, in the Christian church, in Christian circles, it's a doctrine that is taught in Mormonism. It's taught among Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, Christian science teaches it. And so do now some mainline denominations. And it's this idea that eases or erases the biblical view of an eternal Fire. Let me tell you right now, and we'll, I'll prove it to you, that the Bible makes absolutely clear that the lake of fire is eternal. That to land in the lake of fire is not for a season or a time, it's not for a thousand years, it's not for a billion years, it's not for eons, it is for ever and ever. That's what the Bible teaches, the lake of fire is forever. But there are those who say, I'm not comfortable with that. I don't like that. Guess what? I don't like it either. You know, every ounce of compassion in me says, oh man, we got to cut people some slack here. But the problem is, compassion doesn't always recognize truth. You know, my desire to see people let off the hook isn't always the best choice for people. There have been times when my kids have done something wrong and I punish them and I haven't punished them long enough because they do it again. So it's compassion and it's his desire just to, oh, come on, let's go easier on them, you know. This doctrine's called annihilationism. You might note it. It's either annihilationism or destructionism. And it basically teaches that those who die in, in rebellion, the wicked dead, are punished in hell for a time. And then once they've suffered enough, they're just annihilated. They, they, they cease to exist. They don't go to heaven. Because they rejected Jesus. So that's how in, in mainline Christianity people say, well, no, we're not saying that they go to heaven. But they only are in hell until their judgment is fully paid. And then, and then they just kind of cease to exist. 
And where this theology comes from, or this, this doctrine, comes from those who like the idea that there's an end point to punishment. So that it's not an eternal issue. For those who question the eternality of punishment, I want you to notice something. Guess who's still in the lake of fire a thousand years later? Skip ahead to verse 10 of chapter 20. Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. So now a thousand years has gone by and the beast and the false prophet are still there. But that's not all we're told. And they, that is the three of them, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Day and night, forever and ever. In the Hebrew, forever and ever is la'olam va'ed. And it literally is translated in everlasting perpetuity. It's everlasting, everlasting. It's, it's the Hebrew way of saying ongoing without end. In the Greek, the phrase, and it's the phrase you see right here in verse 10 of Revelation 20, forever and ever. It's ionos ton ionon. Where we get our word eon from ionos. Ionos ton ionon. And it means, again, ages upon ages. And it's the Greek way of saying ongoing forever, it never ends. It's very specific language. The phrase forever and ever, whether in the Hebrew or in the Greek, is used 43 times in the Bible. 23 in the Old Testament, 20 times in the New Testament. And I want to give you a quick sampling, just so you get a sense, not only of what the words mean. I mean, the words mean what they mean. Forever means forever. If anyone ever asks you what the translation or what the, uh, the, the meaning of the Greek word for forever is, you tell them forever. It is what it is. But if you're not sure, listen to this. Exodus 15, 18 says, The Lord shall reign forever and ever. So how long will the Lord reign? Will His reign ever end? No. No end. By the way, that's the first time it's used, and that's in the Song of Moses. Exodus 15, 18, The Lord shall reign forever and ever. First time that phrase is used. First Chronicles 29, verse 10, David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly and said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. So is there ever a time where God will cease to be a father to Israel? No, forever and ever. Psalm 45, verse 6, The sons of Korah. Side note, sons of Korah. Remember who Korah was? He led a massive rebellion against Moses and against God. I love the fact that it's his sons who are now writers of Psalms. That the sins of the father don't translate to the son. And these sons now write Psalms of praise and worship to God. Well, the sons of Korah say in Psalm 45, verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. How long does God's throne last? Is there any question? Is it ever? Is there, is there any end to the rule and reign in the throne of God? No. Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 21 said to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Never a time where the praise of God through Jesus and to the church does not happen. 1 Timothy 1.17, Paul said, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8, the Hebrew pastor says of the Son, of Jesus that is, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. So, quoting the sons of Korah, the Hebrew pastor says, That's Jesus. And that throne is the throne of Jesus. And it goes on in perpetuity, continually. It never ends. It never stops. Peter says, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 11, To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. I think it's kind of clear what forever and ever means. And you can't, listen, you can't change the meaning of forever and ever when it's used in the positive. You can't change the meaning when it's used in a way that you feel is negative. God reigns forever and ever. The lake of fire burns forever and ever. Well, forever and ever there doesn't mean forever and ever. How can you say that? It, it means what it means. It's the same phrase. Forever and ever. Ionon tone or Ionis tone Ionon is used twelve times. Twelve of the twenty times in the New Testament is in the Revelation. Twelve times. Nine times it refers to God, saying that his dominion, he, that he lives, that he will be worshipped, that he reigns, all of it forever and ever. So we know it's an eternal statement. Three times the phrase forever and ever is used of punishment. For those who take the mark of the beast, Revelation 14, verse 11. Of the smoke of Babylon going up forever and ever, Revelation 19, verse 3. And then finally here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, of Antichrist, of the false prophet, and of the devil, all being in the lake of fire forever and ever. And note there again in verse 10, and I know we've jumped ahead here, but it's important to note this. We'll come back to it again next week, but they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So it's even beyond forever and ever. It's day and night forever and ever, which is a Greek way of saying it just never stops. It, there's no... Well, John Walford puts it this way. The Word of God plainly declares that death is not annihilation and that the ungodly wicked exist forever, though in torment. There would be no way possible in the Greek language to state more emphatically the everlasting punishment of the lost than here in mentioning both day and night in the expression forever and ever, literally to the ages of ages. The lake of fire prepared for the devil and all evil angels is also the destiny of all who follow Satan. Jesus said, Matthew 25:46 These will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. How do you become righteous? There's only one way. By the blood of Christ. If not for the blood of Christ, not a one of us would be saved, nobody would be righteous, and you would not be with God in heaven. You would be in the lake of fire forever and ever. And people say, well, wait, that's not fair. Someone sins once, and they're in the lake of fire forever and ever? Well, first of all, I've never met anybody who sinned once. But secondly, do you understand that we don't, we don't comprehend that sin is bigger than just misbehavior. That sin is bigger than just failure. That we sin against an eternal God. We may be limited by time, and our understanding of things is limited by time. 
So when we give a punishment, a parent punishes a child, we say, you're going to be grounded for two weeks. And it rarely lasts that long. Or you're going to go sit in a corner for ten minutes. You know, and we, we, we timestamp everything. It's how we think. It's how we understand. But we're in a bubble here. God is not in that bubble. God is eternal. So how do you punish sin against an eternal God? Well, let me ask it to you this way. If eternal life is eternal, anyone not believe eternal life is eternal? Does anybody believe there's an end to eternal life? So you have no problem with that one. If eternal life is eternal, then eternal punishment must be as well. And if you still have a hard time accepting or understanding this, let me ask you this. Is there any amount that you can pay to pay off the price of your sin? Can you pay enough of the price to save yourself from wrath? Is there anything you can do other than the blood of Jesus? Other than receiving the Lordship of Jesus? Is there anything you can do? Because if you would say yes to that, then you're stepping into the realm of of purgatory, which is not biblical. There is not a temporary holding place of punishment where you pay off some of the debt that wasn't quite paid. If you believe that, then you're saying the blood of Christ was insufficient. Is the blood of Christ insufficient to pay for your sins and save you? Purgatory teaches it is. That that there are some who, you know, they're going to go there for a time and then they'll be let out. That's the same kind of thinking as annihilationism. The only difference is they're saying that you'll pay off some of your sin and then you'll be let out and you can go to heaven. Whereas annihilationism just says you'll pay for a certain time and then you just cease to exist. Both are not correct from the biblical perspective because both assume that I can save myself if I just pay enough. Well, how much is enough? A thousand years? Ten thousand years? A billion years? How much is enough to add up to or to equal the blood of Jesus that's perfect? And this is where we don't understand that only one has ever been able to pay the price of sin. Let me come back, back up a little bit more on this. Sin in our lives. One sin. And again, nobody sins once. One sin, do you know what one sin does? It was one sin that opened the world to death. Maybe that helps us understand a little bit of how serious sin really is. One one piece of fruit. One rebellious act. One law violated. One moment in time. And death entered the world because of sin. That's how serious sin is. You want another picture of how serious sin is? Stand at the foot of the cross and look up at a brutalized, beaten, torn, nailed Jesus. That ugly, awful, bloody picture. That's how bad sin is. One sin. The eternality of punishment. Jesus said again, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And if you still wonder, how can that be fair? I say to you, God is telling us now. Because that's not His will for you. That's not His desire for anyone. That any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
and be saved for everlasting life. By the way, the last time forever and ever is used. Spoiler alert, look at Revelation 22 verse 3. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and His bondservants will serve Him and they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night. They will not have need of the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Which is the offer. That's what God's saying to you and to me right now. It's what He would say to anyone who says, I don't want this idea of an eternal punishment. Great. Great. It's not for you. Remember, even in Matthew 25, Jesus said that hell was created for the devil and his angels, not for you. Hell is not for you unless you stand in your sin and claim to be good enough. And if you're in that place or you think anybody can, well, we'll see Judgment Day when we get further down into chapter 20 next week. Meanwhile, back to the end of Armageddon. Go back there right now. Beginning of chapter 20, I want to cover a couple more things tonight before we're done. Before the start of the Millennial Kingdom, at the very front end of Revelation 20, as Armageddon has ended, before the Millennial Kingdom begins, there's someone still running around who needs to be dealt with. Someone still loose on the earth, and he becomes the only POW of Armageddon. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, the abuso, remember the pit, Revelation chapter 9, that the demons were led out of. Now Satan is thrown into that pit, into the abuso. And he shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Now, a couple things to note on this. Number one, Satan is not an equal to God or to Jesus. And we see it here in these verses that it's not Jesus who grabs hold of Satan and and ties him up and and chains him and throws him. It's just an angel. Someone take care of Satan. (laughs) He's running around like, can you just... Take care of that. And so he's chained and he's thrown down. But this raises two questions as we open up Revelation 20. Two questions we got to answer. Number one, is Satan bound right now? Anyone think that he's bound right now? Anyone think that Satan is bound up right now and not running loose on the earth? (laughs) I want to be sure. Because there are some who think that we're in the kingdom right now. This is the kingdom. I've heard that before. You know what my reaction is? This is the kingdom? This is as good as it gets? It's horrible. This is the kingdom with all the deception and murder and anger and vitriol and lawlessness and all the stuff that we see going on around us. This is, Satan is bound? I mean, any thinking person knows that that's not true. For anyone who thinks that we're currently in the kingdom, and it's called kingdom now theology, we're in the kingdom and we're developing it, and we're going to finish it all up, and, and it's going to be pristine when the church does its job, and then we're just going to hand it over to Jesus. But we're in the kingdom now. Wrong-o, Mary Lou. 
And my apologies to Mary Lou, whoever she is. How can anyone say Satan is currently bound? I want to give you an example, but I have to ask permission from Andy. Can I tell about what happened to you this past week with the court case? And is that allowed? I can? Okay. Putting you on the spot, man. So Andy's a police officer. Please watch your driving as you leave tonight. And he arrested a man, if I get this wrong, just tell me, but he arrested a man for Grand Theft Auto. But it was an easy arrest because the guy was stoned. He was just passed out in the car that he had stolen. So pretty much a, a, a close and shut case, right? Take this to court, throw, the, throw away the key. Guy, you know, Grand Theft Auto, and he was stoned. And in court this past week, uh, apparently, this gentleman was let off from Grand Theft Auto. Why? Because he was high and didn't know what he was doing. Yeah. <laughs> True story. I kid you not. I, Larissa shared this with me. I'm like, oh yeah, and we're in the kingdom, baby. <laughs> Unbelievable thinking, but you hear this kind of thing, you go, no, that's not so a law abiding. If I went out tonight and stole a car and Andy saw me and arrested me, and he would, I would pay for it. He's in his right mind, he knows what he's doing. Not a hint of drugs in him. I, I, I just, I do not get the thinking. Let me just say to you, saints tonight, do not be discouraged. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming where Satan is going to be locked up. This time, and we're about to get into it, not tonight, just for time's sake, but the millennial kingdom is going to be a time of unparalleled paradise on the planet. We will never have seen the world, except for Eden, for a short time. The world has not seen nor has the world known the kind of perfection and paradise and splendor and and pleasure that will be known in the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. How do you know this? Jesus is going to shepherd the place with a staff of iron, which we talked about on Sunday morning. Not a rod of iron to beat people over the head. It's a staff, a shepherd's staff of iron, meaning that it is unbending, it is an unbending, strong, firm reign of righteousness, Andy. Right things will happen. Right will be right, wrong will be wrong, and Jesus will be sure of that. And there will be no question... And there will be no gray areas with Jesus on the throne. And the church will be reigning with Him throughout the earth. The church ruling and reigning, implementing His righteous government in this thousand years of absolute peace and prosperity. And say on top of that, Jesus reigning, the church, His government, and Satan bound. How great is that? He will not be able to deceive. He will not be able to tempt. He will not be able to entice people to sin. All of that's just taken away. Now, people still have free will. There will be occasion where judgment has to be given. But that's the extent of it. And it's going to be perfect. It's going to be beautiful. But that brings me to the second question. Satan is bound. Perfect kingdom. Why, oh why, must he be released at the end? Because it says after that, after these things, he must be released for a short time. Why? Why didn't we just throw him into the lake of fire in the first place, along with the beast and the false prophet? That'd be cool, or hot, depending on you know which side you're on. I'd love to see, just get rid of him. He's bound, 
and then released. Why? Listen, because even after a thousand years of peace, prosperity, and paradise under the righteous rule of Jesus, even then, when Satan is loosed, well, look down in verse 7 of Revelation 20. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, I'll explain that next week, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. My friends, even after a thousand years of the perfect reign of Jesus, there will be a massive rebellion. Why would God allow that? Why would God allow a massive multitude like the sand of the seashore rising up, following Satan in this last attempt to rebel? It will be instantly put down, but God allows it. Why? It proves once and for all that grace is the only means by which a person is saved. That if there's someone living in the millennial kingdom and they live a pretty, a pretty darn good life because there's no one to tempt them. And because Jesus is on the throne. And because the church having been raptured and glorified now serving throughout the world is keeping an eye on things and helping people to avoid sin. And, and someone lives a pretty good life. At the end of that, they don't just stroll right on into eternity and go, I'm here because I was good enough. God one more time opens the door and says... You have opportunity to choose. You've had a thousand years with me. It's been beautiful, marvelous, perfect, so you know what it's like to be with me. But I'm letting this dragon out one more time. Make your choice. And a massive number of people at that time will choose the dragon. Which tells you something about the sin nature of man, but it also tells us there will not be a single resident in the new heaven, new earth, or new Jerusalem who will not know and declare emphatically, for by grace we have been saved. Through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Grace is the deal. Jesus is the deal. And even those born in the millennial kingdom, and there will be those born at that time, those who didn't know the world before, born into a perfect world under the righteous rule of Jesus, even they will know and declare on into eternity, I am here for one reason, and it's because Jesus died for me grace. And it is grace that even gives us the message of this punishment, the message of the lake of fire. It's why Jesus talked about hell as clearly and as often as He did because He loves so much. He wants to make sure we know exactly what we're avoiding and not to go that direction. Last thought for tonight. I want you to go back to verse 19 of chapter 19. We'll end here. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And as I said, it is, it's nothing short of insane that the world will react to the coming of Jesus this way. And to know these armies are going to, in a moment of panic, turn to fight against the very king of kings himself. But I'd like to ask you to think tonight, how often do you find yourself turning against God? When was the last time you turned to look at Jesus 
seeking to come into reign in your life or to rule in your life and you fought against Him or you turned against Him or, or you pushed back against Him. When was the last time you fought God on some doctrine? Maybe the eternality of the lake of fire. Maybe eternal punishment. You don't like that. Maybe there's some other doctrine in Scripture. You've read, you've, you've seen it, you know it's there, but you're like, I just, I, I, I can't accept that. When was the last time you fought God, at least from your perspective, on an issue in your life or some personal problem or some conflict or something you think He's allowing in your life and you don't want that and you didn't choose that and you push back against Him? And I'm asking the question because I think we need to get a sense of the world turning on God. And how often do we do that very thing? Do you find yourself turning all your ammo against the shepherd as he comes with his firm ruling staff? Paul wrote in Romans 9.21, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? i got to tell you all, I read that and i got to raise my hand. Who am I, O man, who answers back to God? I'll tell you who. I'm one who answers back to God. And I have. And there are times in my life where I say, No, Lord! No, I'm not going to do that. And Cheryl patiently waits, and about a week later I come back and say, Yes, Lord. Not not that she's Lord. I'm not saying that. (laughs) But she knows me well enough to know many times. See, I'm a no guy. I say no first. And then I pray about it, and God changes my mind. And so she's very patient. She's learned. Just give Rick a few days. He'll come around to a yes. But I have been in that place, and I'm, I'm sure a few of you at least have as well, where you're answering back to God. Why is it this way? Why is my life the way it is? Why did you do this to me? It's not that different from the armies in the fields of Megiddo. We don't want this. I don't want what you're doing. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? And so Paul's question is, would you really correct God or even refuse God or worse, turn on Jesus when He comes to rule and reign. It's bird food behavior. That's what you do if you're bird food. You turn against God and against what He's called to you in your life, against His prescription, against His word. I'm not having it, God. And you are acting that way toward God. And when you do, when I do, one of two things can happen. Number one, we get prodded. Which is a good thing. Jesus will poke and prod and goad us. He did with Paul, Acts 26, 14. And when he had fallen to the ground, I I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I love the compassion of Jesus dealing with Saul, who would become Paul. Saul, you and I both know what's going on here. I've been coming to you and you've been trying to kick out the staff from under me. I have been with the shepherd's staff, goading you, Saul. I've been, you know, piercing your conscience here, Saul. No, I'm not going to have any of it. It's hard to do, isn't it, Saul, Jesus says. 
and he would say the same to you and the same to me tonight, it's hard to fight against me. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're in Christ, but you're pushing back against Him, and we all have and we all can, He's going to prod you. He will goad you to direct and to guide His children. But if you stay rebellious, and for those who do, you don't just get prodded, you get pecked at and picked over and preyed upon. That's what happens when we reject God's perfect plan for our lives. The enemy wants you to be bird food. The devil wants you to fight against and end up being pecked and plucked and preyed upon. So, how do we keep from turning on God? How do we avoid that bird food mentality? And the answer is very simple. You turn to Him. Isaiah 40, verse 31, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. So, bird food or eagle's wings. It's your call. And Father, I pray that You will continue to prod and goad us. That You will treat us as a shepherd with His staff. That You will stop us from wandering foolishly into the rocks and off the cliffs and and away from the fold. That You will gently and tenderly, as You so perfectly do, guide us with Your rod and Your staff. Comfort us, Lord. And I pray, Lord, if anyone here tonight doesn't consider themselves a follower of Jesus, I pray all the things that we've talked about from the eternality of hell to the great supper of God to all that we have been told that is coming that it will cause a turnaround in the heart and a desire to turn to You, Lord Jesus, now rather than turning against You then. And Lord, may our words continue to be salted with the same kind of grace that You use with us. Give us boldness with those who don't know You. Give us love and compassion with those who do. And Father, may we rise up with wings like eagles because we have learned to wait upon the Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. If there's anything we can pray for you, I invite you to come forward. If you have never given your life to Jesus, don't wait. You know, the one thing I cannot tell you tonight is when this is going to come down. I can't tell you. I believe it's soon. So if you have never given your life to Jesus, if you have never prayed for His Lordship, I invite you to come forward tonight. Les and I will be standing right up here in front and we'll pray with you and you can start walking with Jesus tonight. But if there's anything we can pray with you about, please come. Let's stand together and sing.